Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of November 26th, 2023, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. Well, we've seen the first glimmer of hope since October 7th, a long-awaited humanitarian pause of four days has begun in Gaza, and the first exchange of captives has taken place. Thirteen Israelis, all women and children, and eleven Thai and Filipino workers released by Hamas in exchange for 39 Palestinians released by Israel. The released Palestinians were all women and youth mostly held without trial in administrative detention for such offenses as throwing stones or the broadly defined charge of supporting terrorism, quote-unquote. But all the humanitarian groups working in Gaza agree that four days is meaningless if the siege and bombardment are to resume after that. And we meaning the global community, must urgently demand a full ceasefire. More urgently than ever, demand a full ceasefire. And then, optimistically, think about what our next demand is. But the urgent, immediate demand remains a full ceasefire, that Israel not resume bombardment after the four days have expired. And everything I'm going to say over the course of this rant is aimed at clearing the air so that we can most effectively advance that demand. Clear the air in terms of the ubiquity of toxic propaganda. I note with great alarm the following report from The New Humanitarian, an excellent website for serious reportage from war and disaster zones around the world, which noted Friday, November 24th, a staff petition sent to UNICEF boss Catherine Russell urging the agency to, quote, condemn the collective punishment of Gazans and Palestinian people, end quote. Elsewhere, a letter attributed to staff at dozens of international NGOs, says their organizations are, quote, crippled by fears of being accused of anti-Semitism, end quote, and urges a stronger stand, quote, our role cannot be strictly limited to providing aid, which will only, if even, help some to survive another day under siege, end quote, which illustrates how utterly dangerous is this relentless, cynical, Zionist propaganda tactic of portraying any criticism of Israel at all as anti-Semitism, which, in turn, makes it more incumbent upon us, progressives and anti-war forces, to be very clear about what anti-Semitism is and what it isn't. We'll go through some examples from recent media coverage. I will start with the most maddening and egregious. Mark Lamont Hill of Al Jazeera 
on November 10th had a testy exchange with former U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman on the Upfront program. And it was the kind of interview that I absolutely hate. They were both talking over each other, and there was way more heat than substance. But one absolutely staggeringly cynical thing came out of Friedman's mouth. First, he said it was proven that Al-Shifa Hospital, which has notoriously been targeted for raids by the Israeli Defense Forces, was being used as a Hamas command center. Lamontkill interrupted him to ask for proof, which was a legitimate question, because even now, more than two weeks later, no command center has been uncovered, although much has been made of a tunnel found under the hospital, but that's about it. And Friedman responded, quote, So now we're going to get into this basic Holocaust-denying idea that the evidence Israel has shown is not valid. End quote. Unbelievable. So now, in wartime, when we all know the first casualty of war is truth, and it is incumbent upon us to treat the claims of any warring party with skepticism, we are told we have to accept on faith and without question any claim being made by the IDF. And if we don't, we're the equivalent of Holocaust deniers. And all the more perversely, this propaganda tactic is being used in the advancement of what could actually be a genocide. Even the United Nations Human Rights Office has used this word now. It is staggering that anyone could be so depraved as to use this propaganda tactic. I mean, every time I think the general intellectual climate couldn't get any worse, it gets worse. You are a Shanda, David Friedman. I will assume he knows what that means. And a part of what makes it so dangerous apart from facilitating war crimes, is that it plays into the anti-Semitic perception that anti-Semitism doesn't exist, but is just a trick being conjured by those wily Jews, which is some dangerous BS that I am hearing more and more of, even as actual anti-Semitic attacks have been reported from around the world over the past horrific weeks. Now, in parsing this stuff, it is useful to divide such instances or utterances into three broad categories. First, as in this instance on Al Jazeera, in which Lamont Hill merely asked Friedman to provide a source for his claim, like a journalist should, and got baited as a Holocaust denier for it, there are things which are clearly not anti-Semitic despite the attempts of Zionist propaganda to portray them as such. At the other end of the spectrum are things that clearly are anti-Semitic, despite the attempts of some anti-Zionist propagandists to deny that they are such, using the mantra, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, as a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card. A statement which I wholeheartedly agree with, but which is also 
subject to dishonest abuse. And then there's a spectrum in between of things which are less clearly anti-Semitic, and there's some degree of ambiguity, including a lot of what has been heard and seen at the absolutely necessary and urgently mandated protest against the bombardment of Gaza that may be playing into the hands of our enemies. And this is where it is incumbent upon us to be very clear and precise about what we mean, as well as sophisticated about our tactics and what rhetoric is going to help rather than hinder our aim, which, remember, is first and foremost a halt to the bombing at this moment. Several examples are provided by a story that appeared on the Israeli news site Ynet on October 15th by one Emily Schrader, entitled, quote, I am feeling like I'm in 1940. The Israel-Gaza war goes to campus. The subhead reads, Throughout Hamas's so-called Day of Rage, Jewish people and institutions were targeted in anti-Semitic attacks worldwide. However, the most alarming scenes were on U.S. college campuses, end quote. Well, for starters, the first subterfuge is right in the head, and I've seen this in other Jewish media outlets as well. We all know that Hamas called a day of rage for October 13th, and we also know that there has been just about daily protests against the bombardment of Gaza since it began in cities and on campuses across the U.S., as well there damn well should be. But the coverage cynically assumes that any protest that took place on that day, October 13th, was held in response to the Hamas call, even if no evidence actually suggests that. What, were people supposed to not protest the bombardment that day because Hamas had put out a call for protests? <clears throat> and as for the student who was quoted as saying, I am feeling like I'm in 1940. Well, that's a bit of exaggerated hyperbole there. It's more like 1938 at the very worst. <clears throat> We're only up to the broken glass, not the mass roundups. <clears throat> and the Ynet article does delineate some unambiguously unkosher things, like the defacing of synagogues, but then mixes in some stuff which is at best quite ambiguous, and I'm going to discuss one in particular. The account states, quote, in Mexico City, death to Zionists was sprayed outside the Israeli embassy, and a memorial to the victims of the Hamas attacks was vandalized, unquote. However, the link for this claim to a Twitter account called Stop Anti-Semites goes to a page that no longer exists, presumably a deleted tweet. Curious. And the photo on the Ynet page captioned, anti-Semitic graffiti outside of the Israeli embassy in Mexico, quote-unquote, shows a wall painted with a Palestinian flag and the words, 75 años de genocida y exterminio a Palestina. 75 years of genocide and extermination of Palestine. 
So, uh, where is the unambiguous anti-Semitism here? Now, the phrase death to Zionists is overheated, especially given the extremely widespread use of Zionist as a code word for Jew in online discourse, if we can call it discourse exactly. And I'm not happy about the idea of a memorial to the victims of October 7th being defaced, but neither of these two things are seen in the photo. And again, the link provided to document it is dead. And I could find no other references to that verbiage or the defacement online, so I have to be skeptical about it. And the verbiage and imagery actually shown in the photo, well, the Palestinian flag can't be considered anti-Semitic by any reasonable definition. You can argue whether there has been a continuous genocide and extermination of Palestinians since 1948, but certainly there was mass ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians in 1948, and certainly there were acts of genocide committed by the Zionist armies in 48. Google Dear Yassin, if you are unfamiliar, D-E-I-R, new word Y-A-S-S-I-N, and there has certainly been an escalation in recent years toward a genocidal solution to the Palestinian question, which we are arguably witnessing the execution of now, or certainly preparation for its execution. The word exterminio may be questionable given its implicit evocation of the Nazi death camps. The Zionists are Nazis propaganda and memes are generally overdone and unhelpful and seem like they're designed to be intentionally provocative to Jews, although I think it is legitimate to point out the irony that a state founded as a refuge from genocide is now, at least, escalating toward genocide. I don't think everyone who points that out is demonizing Jews. So it isn't any good to just say that such verbiage is anti-Semitic full stop, as if that ends the discussion. Words have meanings. Now, I went digging on Google to see if I could get a more comprehensive account of this and failed to find one. I found a few other accounts in Spanish from the Mexican and Latin American press, but they didn't show photos of the graffiti or Orfer verbatim rendering of what was written, which is frustrating. But interestingly, I did find articles about an other graffiti attack on the Israeli embassy in Mexico City on September 21st, 2022, which I had not been aware of at the time. During a demonstration over the notorious Ayotzinapa case, if you are not aware, on September 26th, 2014, 43 students from the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College in Mexico's conflicted southern state of Guerrero were abducted in the nearby town of Iguala 
apparently by corrupt local police, and turned over to a murderous narco gang and disappeared. There has been an ongoing, insufficient investigation in Mexico and a long campaign by the families of the missing students for accountability in the case. And finally, in 2020, warrants were issued for the arrest of a handful of Mexican federal officials charged with a cover-up in the case, including Tomas Zerón de Lucio, the former head of Mexico's Criminal Investigations Agency. But he went on the lam before he could be arrested and is apparently in Israel, which has thus far refused to extradite. And at this rally in Mexico City last September, marking eight years since the disappearance of the students, the protesters painted slogans on the walls of the Israeli embassy to demand the extradition of Zeron which was the subject of a formal diplomatic protest by Israel. And media accounts showed that among what was painted on the walls of the embassy was a Star of David with a slash through it. You know, the circle slash symbol used to denote the negation of something. So uh, was this, by way of example, necessarily anti-Semitic. The Magan David is today the symbol of the state of Israel, as well as of Judaism. Just a fact. And if the Campesino movement in Mexico is beginning to make the connection between their own struggle for human rights and land recovery to that of the Palestinians, that's a good thing. And it is the appropriation of the symbols of the Jewish people by an institutionally racist, oppressive, and bellicose settler state, which inevitably leads us into confused and dangerous territory. And this is where we must address the extremely dangerous moves toward formalization of the conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. You might have noticed that in December 2019, President Trump signed an executive order ostensibly extending civil rights protections to Jewish students on college campuses, which formally adopted the working definition of anti-Semitism, quote-unquote, drafted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, and particularly its listed Contemporary Examples of Anti-Semitism, quote-unquote. On this list, officially endorsed, but not actually quoted in the executive order, is the following item, quote, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g., by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor, end quote. Okay, let's say it plainly. The state of Israel is a racist endeavor, as it is predicated on the lie of a land without people for a people without land, as the Zionist slogan went, and on expropriation of the Palestinians of their lands and rights. Israel is hardly the only state 
predicated on racism, but this nonetheless remains a reality. So consistent single standard anti-racism is essentially impossible under the terms of this executive order, opposing both Jew hatred and the oppression and occupation of the Palestinians is now effectively verboten. Just by way of example, speaking for myself, I have been explicitly targeted by Jew haters with all the typical anti-Semitic tropes, including hate mail I received from a Ku Klux Klan chapter in New Jersey when I was an editor at High Times magazine accusing me of being part of the Jewish conspiracy to destroy America's white youth with drugs, quote-unquote. But I am now explicitly labeled an anti-Semite by virtue of my opposition to a state founded on racist assumptions and practice. And in addition to being bad for the Palestinians and their stateside advocates, which is obvious, This is also bad for the Jews. It can't do other than play into the hands of those who would launder their anti-Semitism as anti-Zionism or use the guise of the latter to sell us the former. And yes, they certainly do exist. Now, any expression of opposition to Jew hatred will be officially tainted by a double standard that embraces the oppression of others. Do you get it? On the other side of this noxious coin are those who point to this reality to justify attacks on synagogues and other Jewish targets, which I hear depressingly often on social media. This is really dangerous and tiresome. We all understand how Zionist propaganda muddies the moral and intellectual waters. That lets nobody off the hook for actual anti-Semitic propaganda or attacks. Is this really so hard to understand? Some other instances widely reported in the media that demand scrutiny. On November 9th at MIT, a student protest briefly blocked the university's main entrance and, as it was widely depicted in media accounts, prevented Jewish students from entering and going to class. The to-do prompted university authorities to respond, although in slightly equivocal terms. I read from the website of MIT President Sally Kornbluth, quote, Were Jewish students prevented from going to class? We are aware that at moments during last Thursday's protest, some students were impeding access to the Infinite Corridor, which I guess is the main hall at the main building at MIT. Further, due to the loud protesting taking place, it is no surprise that some students felt afraid of passing through Lobby 7. We are not aware of any ongoing issues facing our students in moving around our campus generally. However, we are aware that some of our Jewish students are fearful. Accordingly, we have expanded police patrols and taken other steps to ensure our community remains safe. 
We will continue to work to restore for all members of our community a sense of safety and freedom that is essential to allowing all of us to thrive in our work and studies, end quote. Uh, that says nothing. It's a yes or no question, Sally. Please don't dissemble. And if you don't know, just say you don't know. This question calls for clarity, not obfuscation. Now, if the protesters were barring Jewish students merely for being Jewish, this immediately raises the question of how they were able to determine that they were Jewish. I think it's much more likely that they were barring everyone from entering as an act of civil disobedience. And since Jews fall into the category of everyone, that would include Jews. I want to know where the evidence is that they singled out Jewish students. And then, right in my neighborhood, in lower Manhattan, at Cooper Union College, it was reported that on October 25th, quoting from our local The Village Sun, for which I occasionally write and photograph, quote, Pro-Palestinian demonstrators allegedly cornered a group of Jewish students in the library of the school's foundation building, meaning the historic main building on Cooper Square. The protesters pounded on the library's doors, which, according to some news reports, were barricaded. End quote. This appeared under the headline, Call for Cooper Union President to be fired for not protecting Jewish students. Quote, unquote. But, a Gothamist website later reported, NYPD, no danger to students during Cooper Union protest. Quote, police say students were not in serious danger during a pro-Palestinian protest at Cooper Union after multiple outlets initially reported Jewish students were barricaded in the university library. NYPD Chief of Patrol John Chell briefed reporters saying police were present at the university throughout the protest and that university staff chose to lock a library door as a precaution, but that no threats were made against students supporting Israel or Palestinians and no criminality was involved, end quote. Hmm. Now, I was actually at that demonstration and took photos there, which would appear in the Village Sun, Presumably, I was there just shortly before this incident happened, and as is very often the case at demonstrations for Gaza here in the city, there was a pro-Israel counter-demonstration sharing with them the little plaza in front of the main entrance to Cooper Union, and they were, by and large, keeping a respectful distance from each other, but there was some minor taunting going on back and forth while I was there. And I assume what happened after I left is that it escalated and the pro-Israel demonstrators entered the Cooper Union building and the pro-Palestinian protesters followed them in and realizing they were outnumbered, they took refuge in the library and the door-pounding incident ensued. Again, this incident was unfortunate, but is it anti-Semitism? I don't think that qualifies as anti-Semitism, if, in fact, that is what happened. This was two groups on different sides of a political question at a very fraught time, with bombs falling on civilians and thousands being killed. 
If, in fact, that's what happened, it's not like Jewish students were hunted down and harassed merely for being Jewish. Once again, how would the pro-Palestinian protesters even know that they were Jewish in that case? Much more likely, they were targeted for being pro-Israel counter-protesters, not for being Jews. Critical distinction. Okay, I suppose here I must say something about the word anti-Semitism, because one too frequent response in online discourse is the sophistry that anti-Semitism can't exist because Arabs are Semites too, as if Jew hatred is somehow diminished by an imprecise name for it. Sometimes I am even told that Arabs are real Semites and Jews fake ones, which betrays Nazi-like genetic determinist ideas about ethnicity. Certainly, Jew hatred and anti-Arab racism are linked phenomenon. Jews and Arabs are each seen by their respective haters as money-grubbing, malevolent, all-powerful, and subversive of national sovereignty. But anti-Semitism is the name historically applied to Jew hatred. And we Jews didn't invent it. The anti-Semites did. Google Wilhelm Marr, if you don't know. And as we've stated before, while anti-Semitism in the modern era is at root a European ideology, it isn't like elements of it have not infected political Islam, which is clearly the case. It's not like the Hamas Charter doesn't invoke the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which it does. So please, just stop raising this distraction. Thank you. There are also Jews who are anti-Semites, by the way, like the vile Gilad Atzman, who I had to help organize a picket against when he did a public speaking engagement in my neighborhood in April 2017, okay? Also, on the notion that Arabs are real Semites and Jews false ones, I can't resist pointing out that the increasingly wacky and problematic Noam Chomsky, in a recent video interview which is now unhappily going viral, appears to endorse the so-called Khazar thesis, which holds that the European Jews descend from the Turkic Khazar people and not from the ancient Hebrews. This is oversimplified at best. The Khazars probably did play a role in the ethnogenesis of the Ashkenazim, the East European Jews, but the notion of a direct and exclusive line of descent is unlikely and wholly irrelevant to the question of the national self-determination rights of the Palestinians, as we discussed in our podcast examining the question entitled Wither Kazaria of May 14th, 2022. You can Google it up if you're interested. And meanwhile, this is happening from European Jewish Press, November 23rd, Belgium. At least 85 Jewish graves in cemetery desecrated 
Quote, the location chosen and the theft of numerous stars of David leave little doubt as to the anti-Semitic nature of the perpetrator's intentions, said the mayor of the town of Charleroi. End quote. Sorry, the fact that the Magan David is on the Israeli flag doesn't make this okay. That is some serious BS. And this from uh, Cairo 7 News in Seattle, November 22nd. Mercer Island Synagogue vandalized with horrific and heartbreaking graffiti, quote-unquote. Herzl Nair Tamid conservative congregation in Mercer Island was vandalized with hateful anti-Semitic graffiti. Mercer Island police said synagogue members found the building had been defaced Wednesday morning. It's horrific and heartbreaking, said Rabbi Daniel Weiner, end quote. Now, it seems what was spray-painted on the synagogue were things like shame on Israel, quote-unquote. So maybe it is misleading of this account to say the graffiti, meaning the actual words, was hateful and anti-Semitic. But sorry, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't get to say anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, and then vandalize a synagogue. Doesn't work. Unless maybe that synagogue has been extremely open and aggressive in supporting the Israeli bombardment, and nothing indicates that that was the case, nor in the synagogue attacks reported from all over the world over the past weeks, as discussed in last week's podcast. And in any case, It is terrible tactics, apart from any other consideration, playing right into the hands of the conflators, those who seek to conflate anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Way to go, idiots. And if you don't get what the historical resonance of this kind of thing is for Jews, Google November 9th, 1938. And I'm going to assume, once again, that it is merely coincidental that some of the controversial demonstrations we've discussed took place on that date. Also on the spectrum, so to speak, ambiguous and demanding clarity are the slogans, Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, which we discussed on last week's podcast, and glory to our martyrs, both in widespread use at the protests, and both meeting with very harsh reaction by my Israeli friends who are progressive and anti-occupation. If that first slogan, from the river to the sea, is not a call for driving the Jews from historic Palestine, and the second, glorifying those Hamas militants killed on October 7th as martyrs, then make clear what you do mean. Because I can assure you, not everyone who has misgivings about those slogans has bad intentions. I have misgivings about those slogans. And it isn't like October 7th didn't happen. It isn't like there hasn't been an exterminationist imperative displayed by elements of both sides in this conflict over the generations, even if it is the Israeli state that has the power and the technological means to actually execute it. I'm sure we've all heard about the case of Cornell University professor Russell Rickford, 
who at a campus rally on October 15th said repeatedly, if you watch the video, that he was exhilarated by the Hamas attack of a week earlier. He later apologized for it, but days after his comment, Cornell student Patrick Dye was arrested by the feds for making online threats to kill and rape Jewish students. Now, I'm on the side of the oppressed and occupied and the besieged and bombarded, not the oppressor and the occupier and besiegers and bombardiers, but I reject the notion of collective guilt and collective punishment that, again, has obviously infected both sides in this conflict. Now, if you think the oppressed are immune from international law, and if you think I'm a bourgeois liberal hypocrite for believing that the Geneva Conventions apply to the oppressed as well as to the oppressor, okay, come on out and say it. Let's get the cards on the table. But if you support mass murder of Jews, even if just Israeli Jews, you're going to have a hard time saying that you're not anti-Semitic. Just saying. On the other hand, some who have been portrayed as justifying the October 7th attacks, most emphatically, have not. At the top of the list is UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who is facing calls for his resignation from Israel after saying on October 24th, quote, it is important to recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation, end quote, starting from 1967. Now, I want to compare Gutierrez's obvious and inoffensive statement with one from Moshe Dayan, one of the glorified military heroes of Israel's history. And he was commander of the Israeli Defense Forces back in 1956, when there was one of the first armed incursions into southern Israel from the Gaza Strip, in which an Israeli farmer was killed. And Dayan said, quote, Why should we complain of their hatred for us? Eight years they have sat in the refugee camps of Gaza and seen with their own eyes how we have made a homeland of the soil and the villages where they and their forebears once dwelt. End quote. Of course, at the end of the eulogy, he went on to demand Israel's armed vigilance against attack from the surging sea of hatred and vengeance, quote-unquote, in Gaza without remorse or, giving credit where it is due, hypocrisy. And now, it has been 75 years. It is the 75th anniversary this year of the Israeli War of Independence and of the Nakba, or disaster, as the Palestinians call it. And I will point out that eight years ago, in 2015, the United Nations warned that the destruction from three Israeli offensives in Gaza over the past six years, including damage to the enclave's water, sanitation, energy, and medical facilities, 
coupled with slow reconstruction due to the Israeli blockade, meant that the Gaza Strip could become uninhabitable. Their word, quote, the social, health, and security-related ramifications of the high population density and overcrowding are among the factors that may render Gaza unlivable by 2020. The UN Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, wrote in its annual report, Gaza could become uninhabitable by 2020 if current economic trends persist, end quote. And now it is 2023. There have been two more Israeli offensives since then, including the current one. Gaza has been living on borrowed time, and it has run out. Israel is currently dealing the inhabitability of Gaza, a coup de grace, leaving some two million residents with a very uncertain future. So where is the reckoning? All of you who tar any protest of Israel's actions as anti-Semitic. Where is the reckoning? You! Come on out and say it. That you want to cleanse all historic Palestine of Palestinians. That Jews, by virtue of having been targeted for genocide in the 1940s, are forever immune from international law. Come on out and say it. Let's get the cards on the table. And I'll point out that the veil of hypocrisy is indeed dropping. One meme that I've seen on social media over the past days is an ugly Zionist retort to the from the river to the sea slogan. I quote, from the river to the sea, Israel is all y'all see, end quote, against the backdrop of an Israeli flag, openly annexationist and far more explicitly exterminationist in its implications than the slogan it's responding to. Thank you very much. I just despair when I see shit like that. But for those of us on the other side, those of us who are doing our best to raise a voice of opposition to the bombardment, we've been urgently demanding a ceasefire for the past seven weeks. But ultimately, There has to be some kind of greater reckoning about the future of Gaza and of historic Palestine. And hopefully, best case scenario, we will have the opportunity to have that discussion after the bombing stops and humanitarian aid is allowed in and the rebuilding can begin and new homes are found for the children left orphaned and some kind of livelihood provided for the shattered families and the wounded survivors. Best case scenario. The far worse case scenarios. The far worse scenarios are hopefully too obvious to mention. But meanwhile, we need to exploit these four days, two of which will have already passed by the time this rant is up on the internet, to demand that there is not a return to the bombardment. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.